welcome back to Inception Dialogues. I've just had a nice conversation with American journalist John Horgan, who is a science writer. He writes for the Scientific American. He has also written a number of books about science and philosophy, some of them very well known, like The End of Science from the mid-90s. Um, what motivated us to come together this time was the fact that uh, John um, has an interest in, in Thomas Kuhn, a famous philosopher of science, my very favorite uh, philosopher of science. And John not only has an interest in, in Kuhn, he has also met Thomas Kuhn personally and has had a long conversation with him in the 90s, a couple of years uh, prior to Kuhn's death. And we've discussed Kuhn's philosophy, how John interpret, interprets uh, his philosophy, John's uh, own ideas about it. Um, but because we jump right into the meat uh, of uh, Thomas Kuhn's philosophy, uh, this episode requires a little more of an introduction. Uh, Kuhn has written a seminal book in the 20th century called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I have a copy here, that's the third edition. And uh, in it, um, the central thesis of Kuhn's idea is to dismiss the positivist uh, notion of scientific development as a steady, steady, monotonic progress towards the ultimate truth, as a, a one-directional development towards truth um, that gets validated through comparison of scientific theories with neutral empirical data and experiment. What Kuhn said was that uh, historically, this is not the way science has developed. This is not the way science has advanced. What actually happens is that scientists need a paradigm, a set of beliefs, assumptions uh, uh, about the nature of reality, which enables them to interpret the very data that comes out of empirical experiments. Kuhn uh, 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 put forward the notion that without a preconceived set of values, beliefs uh, and assumptions about reality, one cannot interpret the data. As such, the data are not neutral. The data are already laden with the beliefs, assumptions of the paradigm. And the way science develops is Although there is a certain reinforcement mechanism behind a paradigm which tends to perpetuate it, once there are enough anomalies accumulating, a paradigm is exchanged for another paradigm, for another set of assumptions, beliefs uh, 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 and preconceptions about the nature of reality, which explains the prior data and uh, the new anomalies. Kuhn has been interpreted as uh, a relativist philosopher because his key notion was that truth and falsity only exist within the context of a paradigm, not as absolutes. And the way science has developed is not this monotonic, steady, steady progress in a single direction, the direction of the ultimate truth, uh, but as a more or less arbitrary dance of paradigms in which one paradigm is replaced by another, which is replaced by another. And sometimes they go back and forth in the set of assumptions, values and beliefs that they make about the nature of reality. As such, scientific conclusions, according to Kuhn, are fundamentally relative 
they are not a glimpse at the ultimate raw truth, but they are a mixture of what the empirical data tell you and the subjective aspects that you bring to bear when you interpret that empirical data. So John and I talked for a little over an hour about Kuhn's ideas, uh, John's own take on his ideas, uh, and then we expanded the conversation into a little other related subject areas uh, that are of interest uh, to John, including towards the very end, the interface between science and spirituality, mind and the brain, and so on. I think you'll find this conversation uh, quite interesting. So join me and John for the fifth episode of Inception Dialogues. Um, before we get really to the meat, John, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a journalist, you've written books, you write for the Scientific American, right? Yeah, so I've been, uh, I've been a science writer for exactly 30 years now. I went to, I was a, a, uh, an English major as an undergraduate, but I've always loved science. I wanted, I was uh, split when I was a young person between whether I should be a, a writer or a scientist, and then I realized I could be a science writer. And it turned out to be the perfect career for me. So I, I specialized in that when I went to a graduate school in journalism. I first got a job uh, for an engineering magazine writing about national security issues, then got a wonderful job at Scientific American where I could write about anything. All the cool and, stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I wrote about particle physics, about evolutionary biology, about brain science, about mathematics and complexity theory. And I also did, um, with the encouragement of my editor, I did a series of profiles of famous scientific figures. And what was great is that I didn't have to find any news angle. I could just think of somebody I would really like to meet and talk to and seek them out and try to convince them to talk to me and then write about it. And, That's fantastic. Uh, and so I did a series of philosophers, um, including Karl Popper, Paul Feyerabend, who's one of the most remarkable uh, people I've ever met, the great philosopher, and Thomas Kuhn, of course. Uh, those so, dialogues became a book, right? You wrote a book with those dialogues. Yeah, so I, I wrote, my first book was called The End of Science. And I had this radical thesis that uh, science is approaching its limits, at least science in the grand mode, science um, as this great quest to try to understand the universe and our place in it. And I had chapters. I've got it. Here's a here's a copy. Show us, yes. <laughs> right here. I was just flipping through it. So I've got chapters called. So it's the end of science, and chapters are called the end of particle physics, the end of cosmology, the end of evolutionary biology, and I've got a chapter called the end of philosophy. Wow. And uh, that consists basically of my three profiles of uh, Popper, Kuhn, and Feyerabend and um, an examination of their very critical philosophies uh, and views of, uh, of science. We will come back to your book uh, later on. Um, okay. Uh, what brought us together, I think, was um, that you've met Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher, philosopher of science, personally. You, you've had the rare opportunity to speak to the man himself, right. who was famous for writing uh, that uh, revolutionary book, I have it with me, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I have the third yeah. edition. Um, and you've written almost exactly a year ago, almost to the day, you've written an article for the Scientific American, which I also have here with me. 
in which you tell about your meeting with Kuhn, which had taken place years before, I think in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you've made in this article the best summary ever, the best one-liner summary ever of Thomas Kuhn's idea. You wrote that according to Kuhn, scientists can never truly understand the real world between codes or even each other. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly it, boiled down to, to one line. Can you elaborate on this? How did you come to this? Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, Thomas Kuhn was such a complicated and interesting person. And um, I'm so arrogant that I think in some ways he didn't fully understand um, how radical his view of the world is and um, so to me he's really kind of a philosopher of language and of the limits of language for knowing reality language as used in any way I mean his focus was on science and how um, as science evolves the meaning of certain scientific terms evolves like mass and motion and, and energy and time and things like that and there's some obvious examples of that when you go from classical physics to uh, 20th century physics and some of the changes in terminology that you got as a result of, of uh, quantum mechanics and relativity. But um, I realized on, on uh, reading Structure of Scientific Revolution and thinking about it um, before I met Kuhn and then thinking over what he told me that he's really talking about um, how language, uh, as we use it even um, in uh, non-scientific interactions, is it's our way of, of um, coming to terms with the world, of course, and it helps us uh, communicate with each other and uh, arrive at common meanings, but language is also always a kind of barrier as well to really understanding uh, how things are. And uh, it's, it's this kind of filter, and it's always filtering out something essential. That's what I think that, um, that uh, Kuhn was really saying. And it's this profoundly pessimistic um, picture of uh, the human effort to, to really come to terms with, with this crazy reality that we're uh, living in. And the weird thing about Kuhn is that I felt as though he... You know, part of him realized that that's what he was doing, but another part of him was appalled by this great revelation that he had had and was backpedaling away from it and trying to figure out ways around it uh, so that some kind of concept of truth, whether scientific or other kinds of truth, could be uh, preserved. And as a result of this kind of contradiction and tension in himself, he was... I got the sense that he was kind of a tortured person um, uh, who had had what was almost like a mystical revelation and uh, that was very disturbing to him and that he spent the whole uh, rest of his career trying to come to terms with. You, you, you summarized it by saying that uh, language is the barrier. It's our only tool to communicate, to share truth. But it's yeah. also a fundamental barrier to truth. It insulates us from the truth. Um, that, if you put it that way, it sounds like a more or less ordinary epistemic 
thing, not not a mystical yeah. revelation. Right. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I sort of listen. I I forget if I even mentioned it in that Scientific American piece, but I grew up in the '60s, and so um, I took psychedelics, LSD, other drugs, where you um, you have these experiences, you see reality away in a way that you realize language is totally inadequate to describe. All right, it's a kind of mystical experience. This is what uh, William James meant when he said that um, that uh, the, the mystical revelation is uh, ineffable. It's it's uh, beyond language. So fine, I accept that. And as you say, in a way, it's a kind of philosophical commonplace. Uh, Kant certainly talked about it. Yeah. Um, even, you know, Plato uh, talked about the limits of language in the cave and all that, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, but then, so, but even if you grant that, uh, I think you'd have to say that um, language in some ways is extraordinarily effective. Mm -hmm. And uh, science itself, which uses language at its best in these very precise ways, has been extraordinarily successful at helping us come to terms with certain aspects of reality. And, um, and I don't think Kuhn granted that enough he had his his view of language and reality was too global and he didn't account for the fact that um that certain kinds of language uh that were describing certain kinds of science actually are incredibly effective at um at describing and pinning down certain parts of reality you you've alluded to to the mystical revelation that uh, that Kuhn had and you're probably referring to the 1947 uh, epiphany that he had about Aristotelian physics. Uh, yeah. Before I ask you the question, just for the benefit of the audience, I wanted to read a little part of how Wikipedia describes Aristotelian physics. Okay. And it's the part about uh, natural motion. I'll just quote a little brief passage. Uh, so according to Aristotle, quote, terrestrial objects tend toward a different part of the universe according to their composition of the four elements, earth, water, air and fire. Uh, for example, earth, the heaviest element, tends towards the center of the universe, hence the reason for the earth being at the center. At the opposite extreme, the lightest element, fire, tends upward, away from the center. The relative proportion of the four elements composing an object determines its motion. Eminently logical and eminently absurd. And yet, uh, in your article, when you described uh, Kuhn's epiphany about Aristotelian physics, you said that uh, to Kuhn, suddenly Aristotle made sense when he was staring out of his window. He could understand Aristotle, that there was a way in which Aristotelian physics was correct, and it yeah. was not better or worse than physics today. How on earth can that be? What, what do you think Kuhn saw? What do you think he experienced in that moment of epiphany? I think he suddenly understood Aristotle's terms. So he had been trying to understand Aristotle, uh, to use a Kuhnian term, from the modern paradigm of physics and of, of science more generally. And from that modern perspective, looking back, Aristotle looks crazy, just weird. It, he doesn't make any sense or profoundly flawed in some ways. And uh, 
this shift in his thinking came when he started understanding Aristotle in his own terms. So he had this kind of gestalt shift where, where suddenly he was inhabiting Aristotle's world and seeing the world as Aristotle did. And that was the crux of uh, Kuhn's philosophy that we were, we are always, that there is no purely neutral objective um, standpoint from which to see the universe. You always have some mindset that is often defined by, uh, by a particular kind of language from which you're viewing the universe. And so from that, he concluded that um, if you're looking at the history of science, you can't say, as you put it, that, um, that we're going from bad theories to better theories and even possibly to true theories of nature. Um, you're just going, you're just changing. You're going from one paradigm to another, but there is no absolute objective viewpoint from which you can say the newer paradigm is true and the old paradigm is false. A really very profound, radical view of, uh, of science and its relationship to nature, and one that I think is accurate in describing certain kinds of science, but completely false in describing other parts of science. Kuhn wrote uh, in, a, in a part of his book that he thought that, uh, and I'll quote, something like a paradigm is prerequisite to perception, perception itself. He was speculating, he was not making this as a statement of truth, but something he suspected. He suspected that you needed a paradigm in order to even perceive the world. In other words, that the, as, as he said, the data are not neutral. Uh, the data is already laden with the assumptions, beliefs and values of a paradigm, that if you remove the storyline, the narrative of a paradigm, you will not perceive anything. There will be no perception. Um, that, that is very radical in my view, because it sort of crosses out the correspondence theory of truth. The idea in philosophy of science that a, a statement or a thought is true or false if it corresponds to a neutral objective fact in, in nature. What Kuhn is saying is that either that doesn't exist or if it exists, we can't access it because the data are not neutral. It's paradigm laden already. Yeah, and I, I get that. And I grant it, I mean, this is what we were talking about before as well, and it's a, it's a statement about um, the limits of language and, and the relationship between language and uh, absolute reality, whatever the, had, whatever the hell that is, but it doesn't acknowledge the degree to which um, the history of science in certain respects shows humans actually coming to grips with reality in really significant ways and discovering new facts about the world. Uh, so the shift from um, geocentrism to heliocentrism, to say that that is, um, you know, it's not that heliocentrism is just different from rather than superior to um, geocentrism, to my mind, is just crazy uh, to say that the old uh, Aristotelian uh, notion of elements as whatever it is, earth, fire, uh, air, and, and water, that that was just different from our modern understanding of elements, which started emerging, um, I don't know, 150, 200 
years ago that the old notion is just different from the modern version. Um, again, I see that as absolutely absurd. Kuhn, Kuhn was asking us to believe that that all scientific knowledge is to some extent invented. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's this postmodern idea of of knowledge all being uh, constructed and being a projection of the particular culture from which it emerges. And again, in a trivial sense, that's true. But it doesn't acknowledge that, to my mind, elements are actually really out there. There are certain facts that science has uncovered that become a permanent part of our foundation of knowledge and it's inconceivable that there will be some further paradigm shift that will make us see, for example, the theory of elements and the, the modern theory of elements in the same way that we now see uh, the, the theory of elements of uh, ancient Greeks. Science actually does discover the truth um, and progresses uh, in a very dramatic way that Kuhn was asking us, in violation of common sense, not to believe. I I want to explore this further with you. I think this is this is the key the key point here, and uh, and I want to quote you, you in uh, in okay. your article because your article is very sympathetic to Kuhn and, and Kuhn's ideas throughout until almost the very end, in which you basically say what you just said uh, in other in other words. You said. Um, Kuhn's insight forced him to take the untenable, untenable position that because all scientific theories fall short of absolute, mystical truth, they are all equally untrue. And then you say, fields that achieve consensus or normalcy, to borrow Kuhn's term, do so because their paradigms, or at least certain components of them, correspond to something real in nature. So you're basically contradicting Kuhn's idea, which is that the notion of truth and falsity only exist within the context of a paradigm. He, he didn't deny that there are true things and false things. He only said that true and false can only exist when it's couched in the context of a paradigm and, and, and not as absolutes. Right. Um, you disagree with that, but then you disagree with the essence of Kuhn. I mean, can, can we look at Kuhn in, 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 in shades of gray? Or, or are his ideas binary in this sense that if truth and falsity only exist within a paradigm, you can't, you can't get away from this. You can't say what you said. Well, let, so I'm, I'm citing examples from the history of physics um, to support my idea that uh, science progresses, all right? And uh, that science discovers, um, discovers uh, facts about nature facts like elements, facts like uh, subatomic particles, like uh, neutrons and electrons and, and protons and so forth. Um, I think Kuhn is right that there are some aspects of our description of, for example, an electron that a hundred years from now we might look back on and see were culturally defined and were distorted by our current uh, paradigm. But I think there will also be aspects of our current understanding of subatomic physics, including uh, uh, electrons that we will see as true. And as part of this process of discovery of the physical uh, substance of, of nature. So, so here's the problem I have with Kuhn, and I forget if I said this in my Scientific American article. Kuhn 
doesn't recognize because he's he's too um, as I said his his generalization generalizations are too broad he doesn't recognize this remarkable fact when you look at all different branches of science that there's some areas of science that make this incredible progress that can be measured in a lot of ways and physics is the most dr dramatic example of that and then there are other areas of science that seem to be constantly spinning their wheels and lurching from one paradigm to another in the same way that uh, that uh, kids change their taste in popular yeah. music. It's very faddish, right? Um, so the obvious example of that kind of faddish uh, science that really doesn't seem to be progressing is uh, the, the sciences of the human mind and um, the sciences of human nature, psychology uh, especially, which in spite of the attempts to biologize it through neuroscience and so forth is still seeking its great unifying paradigm um, and also has very little to show in the way of applications of its knowledge that uh, lead you to be more secure that your theory is really um, an accurate depiction of uh, reality. The way I just described it to one of my classes was that um, physics in the 20th century, uh, one reason we can really believe physics is because it gave us the thermonuclear bomb. I mean, what a confirmation that your, um, your understanding of uh, matter is accurate, that you can build this incredibly destructive, dramatic device. Where is the equivalent of a thermonuclear bomb emerging from um, from mind science, from from uh, psychology? I will. This I is, will. This is all left out from Kuhn's picture of science. I will try to antagonize you to enrich uh, the discussion to extract oh, more, to st extract more of you. Um, one could argue that um, physics looks at a very simple experiments in which the number of variables is small compared to psychology or sociology or political sciences and in, in which the number of variables explodes exponentially and one cannot get a grip. So the number of potential anomalies in these more abstract sciences is hugely greater than the potential number of anomalies that uh, contradict the paradigm in physics and the opportunity for confirmation bias in physics, the idea that a paradigm self-reinforces by choosing the data that will lead to results that confirm itself, that idea of confirmation bias that we talked about earlier uh, has a much greater opportunity to manifest itself in physics with a low number of variables than in psychology with a high number of variables where you don't close that self-reinforcing loop. Couldn't that be a, an alternative explanation? Uh, well, that's an interesting way of looking at it, but but it seems to me that it's unfair to call it a bias if um, if your particular way of of uh, looking at an experiment and the results you expect from the experiment are so dramatically confirmed as experiments have been in in, uh, in physics over the course of the twentieth century. Um, you don't don't get anything remotely resembling that from psychology and I think that the reason is obvious as you said that when you're talking about the human brain and the human mind 
um, even deciding what should count as a fact, even deciding what are, I don't know, the kind of elemental constituents of, of a mind, um, it becomes totally arbitrary. And, you know, the wonderful thing is that William James wrote about this more than a hundred years ago. You go back and read William James in Principles of Psychology, published in the 1890s, and he is worrying about um, whether psychology can become a, a, a science and, and trying to uh, compare psychology to physics and realizing that in many ways they're totally incomparable because it, to him it seems that uh, psychology doesn't have any fundamental constituents and so the mind might be irreducible and here we are more than a hundred years later and William James so far was right. So then the question is whether the mind sciences and the science of human nature um, can ever transcend this kind of, I would call it, and again, I think this is where Kuhn is really useful, this pre-scientific state. So the way I understand Kuhn is that science needs a paradigm. It needs a unifying set of ideas and assumptions to really make progress. You don't have that in psychology and, um, and the social sciences in general. And I just wrote about this recently on my Scientific American blog. The, the, the big question is whether we ever will have that kind of unifying insight. We've had all these different attempts. You've had complexity theorists. You've had cybernetics. You've had sociobiology and its mutant offspring, evolutionary psychology, all come, all claiming that they are going to be the unifying, uh, the unifying principle for the mind sciences. It just hasn't happened yet, um, and I suspect that uh, it may never happen because the mind, human nature, is so mutable, it's so fast changing that science will never catch up to it. There is this fairly mainstream, maybe maybe not the mainstream, but a, a fairly common notion in philosophy of science today uh, called anti-realism, which postulates that uh, anything that you cannot see directly with your five senses, uh, that you can only see indirectly through experiments that confirm the implications of that theory, for instance, the very notion of atoms, we cannot really hold an atom in our hands in itself and, and look at electrons, protons and neutrons, uh, this is all derived through implication. Uh, Anti-realism would hold that these theories are, quote, convenient fictions. In other words, that things work as though there were protons, neutrons, electrons, and other subatomic particles that interacted in this or that way. And, and that's why they are very handy for producing technology, for producing the atomic bomb, because things work as though they were true. But we have to stop short from calling them true, because all we know is that insofar as we can see, uh, things work as though they were true. And, and if you look at physics today with the so-called uh, 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 string theory or brain theory uh, uh, revolution, um, the underlying story is changing. It's not particles anymore. It's something yep. that vibrates, something abstract, undefinable that is orders of magnitude smaller than anything we can see, even indirectly. Wouldn't that come back to Kuhn in the sense that uh, these convenient pictures are language structures? I, I call uh, string theory science fiction with equations. Uh, you're absolutely, 
You're absolutely right. I, and this is what I've been saying all along is that Kuhn is um, really useful for understanding certain kinds of science. I was just talking about uh, mind science. Um, certainly, when you're talking about string theory, multiverse theories are so popular now. The idea that uh, that this universe that we inhabit and that we've mapped out with our telescopes and so forth is is maybe just one of an infinite number of these universes in this grand landscape. That's one of the supposed consequences of of uh, string theory. Uh, Kuhn is useful for understanding that. Another philosopher who comes in handy here is is old Karl Popper with his notion of falsification. I tell the string theorists, show me some experiment that can say whether your your theory is uh, falsifiable. Is falsifiable, um, you know, let alone uh, confirmable in the way that are understand that uh, neutrons and protons and even quarks. Uh, have been confirmed, and the problem with string theory and especially and multiverse theories and all that razzmatazz is that there are no experiments that can disprove them. So I don't even think they count as uh, science. I think physics has become uh, pathological. I think physicists are beating up against this wall. They've reached the limits of what physics can really do in this great quest for a unified theory, and so they're kind of going crazy and coming up with all these theories. That um, that really don't have any kind of empirical foundation anymore, uh, and then you can talk about the psychological factors that Kuhn was so interested in that helped to sustain a uh, a uh, given field, even in the absence of any real empirical data. What a sense from you, John, and I may be completely wrong, but I will just share with you with you what I sense listening to you is an effort to bring together two ideas that, at least at first sight, are contradictory, which is to accept elements of Kuhn, to accept that the data are laden with the paradigm, to accept uh, this more or less relativistic, at least at an epistemic level, epistemic level way of looking at the world, but at the same time, you insist and reject string theory, reject M theory and so on, as fantasies, as stories, but at the same time, you insist, I sense, on absolute truth, on the existence of truth outside of a paradigm, something that really is true in itself. It is really out there. Right. How, how do you merge these things uh, in your mind? Well, first of all, I should say that I, I often, I think I'm in the minority um, in holding this view, uh, I have a colleague at the school where I teach, Stevens Institute of Technology and Engineering School um, in New Jersey, uh, who's an historian of science, great guy, Jim McClellan, he's really, uh, he's brilliant, he studied under Thomas Kuhn at Princeton in the 1970s. We have had these almost screaming matches, you know, the kind of arguments where everybody else is just, <laughs> around us is just rolling their eyes and, you know, kind of drifting away. Um, and uh, so let me just tell you one of the uh, arguments that we had. Jim is Jim said you used um, useful fictions, I think, as a term for describing scientific knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jim uses the term stories, and um, you know that we have these stories. 
Some stories are better than others, but you can't say that one story is true and another is false because there aren't these uh, absolute standards. And so um, I was uh, I was trying to come up with counterexamples, and I I brought up um, uh, heliocentrism versus geocentrism, and he and he said, John, uh, you know those are actually both perfectly valid. Geocentrism is valid; it's just a different um, frame for understanding planetary orbits. And so I knew he was going to say that. I fell into his trap. I was really irritated. So I said, okay. What about um, the the story that the Earth is round and not flat or cubical or whatever? And Jim said to me, the Earth isn't round. It's an oblate spheroid. <laughs> and I said, okay, it's an oblate spheroid. But is that is that um, are, is there going to be some period in the future? when we don't accept that the earth is an oblate spheroid anymore, that we're going to learn something that makes us realize that our current understanding of the shape of the earth was totally wrong in the way that, uh, as we said, looking back on Aristotle, that we think of, at least most of us think of Aristotle as being totally wrong. It's just absurd to carry this sort of relativism and social constructive uh, picture of science that far. We now know that the Earth is an oblate spheroid. We now know that matter consists not of Earth, air, fire, water, and everything, but of oxygen and sulfur and, and helium and all these uh, elements in the, the periodic uh, table. So, yeah, um, you know, I guess uh, one of the takeaway messages that I have from Kuhn is that we should be kind of modest in our um, in our assertions about what we know about nature and that nature in some respects and I've said this in all my writing I certainly said it in the end of science remains profoundly mysterious in spite of all the knowledge that we have about it but you have to have a philosophy of science a view of science that acknowledges all these um, features of reality that we have absolutely discovered that are not just human inventions or not fictions or not stories. Kuhn wrote, very interesting, um, I think one of Kuhn's points was that uh, the scientific theories of the past that today we laugh at, um, they were perfectly good as stories, as convenient fictions, to explain the empirical space of man at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, he even wrote, I'll quote him, uh, if these out-of-date beliefs are to be called myths, then myths can be produced by the same sorts of methods and held for the same sorts of reasons that now lead to scientific knowledge. In other words, what is your sphere of empirical experience and what story can you use to explain your experience within that sphere? And I could argue that uh, when, when man thought that the earth was flat, it was a time before automobiles, before planes, before ocean-going ships. And Earth being flat was a fairly good approximation of a small segment of a very large sphere. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't hold in, in our empirical space of today, because today we fly, today we go to the ocean, today we go to space. So we have a new convenient theory. But there was a time, less than a hundred years ago, 
where we thought that this spheroid was in absolute space-time. Mm -hmm. Today we know it isn't, so there is already another convenient fiction. <laughs> you sound just like my friend. <laughs> That's exactly the same kind of thing that he says, that, that um, there are constantly these refinements in our understanding of something like, let's say, I don't know, the shape of a, of a, a planet or even, you know, the structure of the solar system and, and uh, how that is, has been redefined by the post-Einstein picture of, uh, of space and time. And, and yeah, as I said, I, I, I grant all that. And, and, and let, me, let me put it this way. I, you know, so Jim calls me a naive realist. And I'm definitely a realist. I don't think I'm naive. Um, <laughs> the, I think what I, um, you know, not to repeat myself too much, but uh, where I am in total agreement of uh, with Kuhn is and sort of looking forward to how far science can go. So there are some scientists, I've actually met them, it's, um, they're not as common as you might think, who believe that scientific knowledge will eventually converge totally with let's you know whatever the axis of, of ultimate truth is that science will give us a complete picture of reality so complete that there's no sense of mystery and wonder anymore that there are no riddles uh left to solve to me that's totally absurd um that either because of the limits of language and the limits of our own mind, and also the physical constraints that science operates uh, under, that that reality is always going to be at one remove from our knowledge of it, no matter how far our knowledge proceeds. I mean, the most dramatic example of this, there are some scientists, physicists right now, uh, who are claiming that um, the riddle of the universe has been solved that we know why there's nothing uh, that why there is something rather than nothing Lawrence Krauss the physicist uh, wrote a really silly book um, uh, that made this argument recently it had a uh, it had a foreword by Richard Dawkins who was all excited because you know the ultimate mystery where did the universe come from in the first place where uh, religion has is still uh, got supposedly something to say according to Dawkins it's been dispelled once and for all now we know that it was some kind of quantum fluctuation that led the universe to spring into existence total bullshit yeah I agree <laughs> bullshit um, and that's science overreaching uh, and uh, Kuhn would find that idea that science can totally solve the, the riddle of the universe absurd and um, and so do I but as I said, that shouldn't negate the fact that we have, I believe that the Big Bang uh, has, big modern Big Bang theory has captured something really important about the origin and history of the universe in the same way that Darwin gave us an insight into the origin and the history of uh, life on Earth. I think that those are in some ways that they're stories, but they happen to be true stories. And so to call them myths is just unfair, and it's an abuse of the, uh, the terminology. Would it be fair, John, to say that the way you see things is that although the truth is ineffable, fundamentally beyond language, 
that it does provide a direction and a criterion for us to say we are going the right direction and we are approaching it or we are going the wrong direction and we are getting further away from it. Is that how you think? You, you can never reach the goal, but it does give you a sense of direction. Yeah, um, I, I, I believe in scientific progress and I think that the, uh, the history of technology, the applications that have stemmed from our scientific knowledge, and especially in the 20th century, um, demonstrates, um, demonstrates progress in our uh, theoretical um, understanding. I'm a science journalist, and the reason I became a science journalist instead of getting a PhD in literary criticism is because I think that science is our most powerful mode of knowing reality. I still love literature. I'm reading Moby Dick uh, at the moment. Um, and uh, literature can help us understand reality and the human condition in ways that, uh, that science can't approach. But science is the most exciting part of human culture and has been for quite a while and I wanted to be part of that. And I wouldn't have become a science writer if I thought that it was all just stories. Uh, because that's too much like literary criticism. Literary criticism is just almost all bullshit, right? Very, very clever bullshit, sometimes profound bull bullshit, but still bullshit at the bottom in ways that's, that science, good science, um, isn't. Uh, I believe that as a science journalist, my job is to try to tell people um, when certain areas of science has, have degenerated into bullshit, like string theory, multiverse theories, uh, like um, theories uh, of human nature that say that war is something that was selected for by uh, mm. natural selection. It's, it's to me totally bullshit and I can uh, show evidence that, that tries to undermine um, that theory. So in other words, I'm saying that there are certain, certain clear standards of evidence that can be applied to tell you what is legitimate or at least has the hope of becoming some real part of our knowledge and what is total bullshit and should be discarded. And it's a moral issue too because uh, politics and international affairs are often concerned with these empirical issues. Whether there were um, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq uh, before the U.S. invaded, that was an empirical yeah. uh, question and I think it's empirical meaning that potentially it could be resolved. We invaded thinking that there were those weapons, we got in there, turned out that that theory was bullshit and as a consequence tens of thousands of lives were lost and all the rest of it. Um, so to me, to say for, you know, the beef, I, some of my best friends are postmodernists, but the beef that I have with postmodernists is that um, they undermine uh, the, um, the debate over a lot of these different issues, creationism uh, versus evolutionary theory, global warming, where um, I believe that one story is actually empirically superior to another story. And if people, if postmodernism becomes a kind of commonplace, then uh, I think it will feed into the cynicism that people have, that politic, that, excuse me, science is just all politics. And it's all just these, these uh, sort of power games that people are playing with each other.
I think Kuhn himself would be very disgusted of this interpretation of his ideas, that science is pure politics. Yeah, I'm sure he would be. Uh, Kuhn was horrified at, um, at a lot of the consequences uh, or a lot of the um, conclusions that people drew from, uh, from his own philosophy, which is and what made him in some ways a, a kind of tragic figure. And uh, you know, after structure of scientific revolution, I tried to show this when I um, when I wrote about him. Um, he tried. He spent much of his life trying to explain what he really meant by the, the structure of scientific revolution. And the great irony uh, was that, according to his own philosophy, he should have expected to be misunderstood, because language <laughs> said, language he said is always. Uh, uh, going to be in some ways um, is going to lead to miscommunication and misunderstanding in some ways. That's what he said, yeah. and yet he couldn't even come to terms with uh, that own conclusion of his philosophy. Regarding Kuhn as a figure, um, in 1969 he wrote a postscriptum for the structure of scientific revolutions in which he he tried to make clear that his view of the scientific discovery process as a human process involving consensus and subjective values and power play and so forth, and, and the inability for us to gather neutral data, the, the, the paradigm ladenness of data, he tried to clarify that that was not an ontological view, that he was not adopting necessarily an idealist view that reality is purely a mental phenomenon, he was taking an epistemic view, a la Kant, that uh, whatever reality is, all we can have access to is our subjective apprehension of it. Yeah. Do you think he really meant that from the beginning, that he was ontologically neutral from the beginning, or do you think he was backpedaling? Because when you read the structure of scientific revolutions and he talks about the world itself changing when the paradigm changes, yeah. That has such a power, of, a power of idealism in it. Do you think he, he, he backpedaled, he got scared with the reaction? I think he did. And the, the question to my mind um, is whether he was trying to express what he really thought or he was trying to do damage control <laughs> because he realized that, um, that uh, his philosophy of science was being used in ways that were discrediting science, and he was horrified by that. Kuhn insisted that all along that he was pro-science, even though if you go back and read Structure of Scientific Revolution, uh, it's incredibly derogatory towards science in certain sections. He's got this one section I like to quote where he compares um, uh, scientists who are committed to a certain paradigm to addicts, to drug addicts, yeah. and how, you know, <laughs> When the paradigm shatters, they go through a withdrawal process. Oh, you know, in answer to your question, I'm going to cite my friend Jim McClellan again. Um, he said that when he studied under Kuhn, so this would have been shortly after Kuhn wrote what you uh, just mentioned. This was in the, uh, the 1970s, that Kuhn was definitely a realist. He believed that, you know, the world was out there um, and it, the world is what it is. And this would be a kind of uh, Kantian notion. And his philosophy was just about 
um, the the sort of the limits of our ability to really see that world uh, as it is. So, which in uh, itself is an abstraction, right? Because uh, you can't you can't access that world. It's an article of belief that you say that it is there. If if you adopt Kuhn's view fully, integrally. Uh, yeah. It becomes an act of belief. It becomes paradigmatic in itself. So this is one of the ways I, I try to understand this. And, you know, I guess this does come across as, as uh, naive, but, um, but that I, I just wanted acknowledgement that science, that we shouldn't be embarrassed and use air quotes when we use the term discovery, right? So... Um, you know, I've already talked about some things that I think count as legitimate discoveries. The shape of the Earth, uh, the, the, you know, the pattern of uh, the solar system, uh, heliocentrism, subatomic particles, and so forth. Another example that I love, uh, and that I actually mentioned to Kuhn, and he just rejected it, it rejected my, uh, my understanding of it, was the discovery of galaxies. So, you know, it's extraordinary to me. Um, that only about a hundred years ago um, that there was still this debate over what those little smudges in the night sky are. And, you know, Kant himself speculated that uh, those little smudges might be other island universes like the Milky Way, really far away. The, the majority uh, belief, uh, even at the beginning of the 20th century, was that, no, those were just cl gas clouds within the Milky Way, and the Milky Way basically is the universe and then just because we got bigger instruments we discovered oh my god those are island universes those are galaxies way far away that was a discovery that just suddenly expanded the whole universe and gave us this um a true picture of the structure of the universe uh that is irrevocable it's inconceivable, and I think it's a it, it, it's philosophy as, at its most absurd to say that there will be some period in the future when we look back and we realize that that um, we really should have had air quotes around galaxies all along. That galaxies are just going to go away, and uh, we'll see them in some entirely different way, in the same way that we've shifted our view of what the elements of uh, of matter are. You said that uh, Kuhn rejected that. Can you share with us how he rejected this? Well, let me give you an, another example of... Uh, so I, I mentioned a few different examples. When I interviewed Kuhn, uh, there was a debate over... Uh, and here again, gets this is gets into how a consequential philosophy of science can be. There was a debate over whether AIDS was actually caused by this thing that was being called the AIDS virus. And um, I said, surely that is an empirical question that can be resolved by experiments and we know that one idea is wrong and another idea is correct. And Kuhn, um, Kuhn rejected that. Uh, Kuhn said that, um, no, that, that, you know, that, that one, there are these two competing stories and that you can never say even that the old idea that the AIDS virus is caused by something other than this particular virus uh, that the that AIDS that the disease of AIDS is caused by this virus that um, that uh, you can't say that that is um, it's true or false uh, 
and when he was talking about um, when I when I uh, mentioned the example of the galaxies, you know, he, again he just kind of waves his hands and says that uh, that might become a a uh, permanent part of our knowledge, but still it should always be considered tentative and revisable given that science can evolve in the future and there still might be future uh, paradigm shifts. All of which sort of, again, I can grant, but then would add that it's sort of trivial. Yeah. It trivializes science in a way that I think is harmful to science and is harmful more generally to um, all human efforts to understand the world and make uh, social progress. If I can contribute to just one little thought on something you said uh, a moment earlier, uh, John, on the, the example of AIDS being caused by HIV or some other, some other factor. I think, you know, even if you accept Kuhn, you, you know that there is such a thing as true theories and false theories within the context of a paradigm. And the difficulty is to say, when are you crossing the border of the paradigm and things become relative? I think if you accept the paradigm right. that certain illnesses are caused by microorganisms, even within Kuhn, you can state that AIDS is caused by the HIV virus, because that's a question framed by the paradigm that microorganisms cause disease. I, I, I wouldn't interpret Kuhn as saying, well, that is also relative. Uh, yeah, um, I, you know, I, I have posted a uh, a transcript of my entire interview with Kuhn. I, I posted it years ago and I'm not sure if it's still on a website. I'm going to try to retrieve that and um, and repost it because uh, I think we had a discussion about this exact same uh, point and I know there's a lot of interest in what Kuhn actually uh, thought and how he would uh, react when he was confronted with some of, some of these problems uh, for his philosophy and um, I was astonished at how radical he was when I talked to him in rejecting the hope for resolving what I thought were very clear-cut problems like does AIDS come from the AIDS virus or not. Wow. Uh, so, and as I said, that's to me when this becomes more than just an academic philosophical dispute. It becomes, it's about really serious um, uh, problems that yeah. are facing the world, where, where lives hang in the balance. Yeah, and serious so social implications uh, for that. Yes. Yeah. If I go back now to you, uh, to your first book, The End of Science, mm -hmm. um, maybe before I ask you the question, maybe if you could share with us a summary, a quick summary of your main conclusion in that book, your main drive. Yeah, um, so it was inspired by this this idea that was coming from physics, uh, Stephen Hawking had said in Brief History of Time that physicists might be on the verge of, of uh, coming up with a, uh, a final theory of physics, a, a unified theory so powerful that, could that it could basically answer all the questions that physicists were interested in once and for all. That was such a mind-blowing idea that I started wondering if that was if it was possible for science as a whole to uh, come to a kind of final understanding of uh, reality, and so that led me uh, to the conclusion that um, uh, science might not explain everything, but science might go as far as it could uh, in explaining the mystery of the universe 
given that we operate under all these kinds of, um, of economic and social and physical uh, and, and cognitive uh, constraints. And so in the book, I argued that science in the really grand sense of providing these deep insights into nature might already be uh, very near its end. That uh, the best, um, that, that the greatest uh, discoveries, the great revolutions are behind us as embodied by uh, the theory of evolution, the modern theory of genetics, uh, the Big Bang theory of the universe, quantum mechanics, relativity, and so on. So that was basically it. That gives me a great segue to the, to the question I wanted to ask you. I could envision two underlying contexts for this moment when we reach the end of science, the end of all the great scientific revolutions in which very few anomalies are left so few and far in between that we can ignore them and that the paradigm becomes established uh, in a way. I could imagine that on the one hand this happens because we are very close to the truth, as close as we can get uh, given the barrier of language, because truth itself is ineffable, but given that barrier of language and our brain structures and our social constraints as you alluded to, we got as close as we can possibly get. So any little shift will take us further away and will there will be a pull to bring the system back, like you found the global minimum of the system. Yeah. The other scenario is we get stuck in a local minimum in the sense that because of confirmation bias, because the paradigm self-reinforces in the way that it makes you choose what to experiment with, it gives you a context for interpreting your, your experiments and your perceptions, that we refine the paradigm to a point where the self-reinforcement is so great that we cannot dislodge it from that local minimum and it will feel exactly the same way as a paradigm that is in the global minimum. Is there a way to differentiate between these two scenarios of the end of science, uh, John? Probably not, uh, although there are such brilliant imaginative people out there who are always going to be raging against the limits of knowledge that uh, I don't think we will ever become complacent and, and just accept whatever our current knowledge is. We might not be able to transcend it, but there will always be people who try. And uh, there are such enormous mysteries left also that people are always going to be, you know, unless we all retreat into virtual reality or get brain chips that make us blissed out all the time. Uh, we're always going to be still so puzzled by the universe and by ourselves above all. We're the greatest mystery of, of all that we're going to be uh, trying to break out of whatever, whatever our current paradigms are. I mean, it's going back to the brain and mind, um, our understanding of our brains is so pathetically bad as manifested by our terrible um, therapies for mental illness that uh, we will, um, that, that, you know, neuroscience is uh, always going to be a very vibrant and exciting field, even if it's really not making that much progress, at least in, um, in the near term. I, I, I will say that I think that uh, particle physics, cosmology, I really think are, have hit the wall. 
and I don't see much hope for them. The one area of science that I think has the possibility of breaking science wide open again, and and uh, you know, in the classic Kuhnian revolutionary sense, uh, is neuroscience. If neuroscientists can understand the um, the neural code, the kind of software uh, that turns physiological processes in the mind into these perceptions and thoughts that we're sharing um, right now, then that will have enormous philosophical, intellectual implications and also enormous practical implications and all bets are off. You also wrote a book called Rational Mysticism, Spirituality Meets Science in the Search for Enlightenment. And that has to do with brain science and the interplay between the material brain and consciousness, right? What were your, 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 your biggest, uh, most significant insights in that book? Well, you know, that book was inspired by um, this period I went through uh, in my youth when I was fascinated by mysticism. I read Aldous Huxley and I read William James and, and uh, I meditated and did yoga and took psychedelic drugs like a lot of people in my in my generation and and uh, and there was this idea that there are these states of mind that you could achieve um, where you would know reality you would see absolute truth in a way that was impossible through uh, rational means and I wanted to study that and try to see whether that kind of mystical knowledge was compatible in any way with science. So I sought out all these people who um, had the same sorts of interest in mysticism that I did, who tried to understand mysticism from the inside subjectively and also from the outside as scientists or scholars. So here's what I came up with. Um, that uh, mysticism for me, and, and this, this is not a universal mystical experience, but my takeaway from the experiences that I've had is that reality is fucking weird and it's so improbable and that uh, there is no there's no possible explanation for why we should be here the odds are infinitely against our own existence and yet here we are so it was kind of this eye-popping sense of uh, wonder but the word wonder doesn't do justice to this feeling as uh, I experienced. Just the infinite improbability of, um, of uh, reality is, is uh, what I felt. And that is compatible with science in the following way. So the great paradox of modern science is that it's told us so much about the world. And I've already told you about some of these great discoveries that I believe should be should be seen as discoveries and as true facts about about the world. Um, in spite of all that, uh, there are these profound mysteries. Where did the universe come from in the first place? Uh, we have no idea. Why does the universe have the particular dis uh, structure uh, that we've discovered um, and not some totally different structure that wouldn't have allowed life like ours to, uh, to come into being? Total mystery. Um, and it does, and I, I am sure that that mystery will not go away. Why did life emerge on Earth when it did four billion years ago? Why, once life emerged, did it evolve in this direction that produced us? 
these these bizarre creatures that it can actually contemplate their own existence yeah. and their own origins and 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 feel this sense of wonder so um i if you if you define a miracle as something that is infinitely improbable and yet it happens then this then, is a miracle <laughs> then existence is a miracle and it and, and that is something that that's a that Science leads to that conclusion, and mysticism gives us a direct, visceral, emotional uh, experience of that that same realization. So that's where the two are are uh, compatible. I'd like to thank John for having taken the time uh, to talk to me. Uh, he has a very busy schedule. Our conversation was a little bit impromptu. He sent me an email earlier today saying, I have time now, are you around? Let's do it now. Uh, so I rushed to the computer uh, and we did it. Uh, many thanks to him uh, for making himself available. I appreciate it very much. It is not a secret that I am myself an idealist, that I believe that the simplest uh, metaphysical interpretation for reality is that reality is fundamentally a mental phenomenon, a subjective phenomenon that it is not separate and outside of mind, as uh, materialism uh, entails. I know John does not share uh, this point of view. It has been very clear uh, in our conversation that he is a realist. He said that uh, uh, explicitly. Uh, I respect his position. Uh, I disagree with it. Uh, but I think realism, uh, on the face of it, is an eminently reasonable uh, metaphysics. Um, because it seems to explain this disconnect that we experience firsthand between our own thoughts and volition uh, and the way reality unfolds according to very stable patterns and regularities. I have an alternative explanation for that, which uh, I'm not going to get into in here. Um, but to me, a, a key takeaway from, from this dialogue, this rich dialogue, is uh, what I personally perceive as the tremendous inherent power of this archetype of an external absolute truth, a truth external to subjective apprehension, a truth outside of my mind and preceding uh, mind. Um, irrespective of whether this is just a, a psychological archetype as I hold, uh, because I am an idealist, or whether it corresponds to empirical fact, whether it's the, the correct metaphysical interpretation for reality, irrespective of that, uh, it is clearly a strong psychological archetype. And I think uh, that has come through uh, in my dialogue uh, with John, that, that difference uh, between our ways uh, of interpreting uh, reality and, and interpreting the data. But it is precisely this this difference in perspective, this difference in, in, in ideas and interpretations of empirical fact that I think you have seen between me and John, when it's debated with respect and candidness, it is precisely that difference that makes for an interesting dialogue, I think. Um, I'm very happy with this episode. I'm very happy uh, and grateful for the opportunity to talk to John. And, and I hope you've enjoyed it uh, as well. So see you next time. Uh, in the next episode of Inception Dialogues. Till then.